So Ecclesiastes start in verse 11. And this is what he says. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. So I'm going to stop there and then we'll, we'll continue on in a bit. But we all have an idea of what it takes to be successful in life, don't we? Things like diligence, hard work, perseverance. But, but there are those who seem to just make it look easy. You know, there's some, they're like playing on a different level than the rest of us, it seems like. They're, they have natural ability, something that causes them just to really succeed. And so we view them in, in the winners, as the winners in life because of what they're able to do. So when we ask questions like, who's supposed to win the race, what's the answer? Well, the fast person. That's who's going to win the race. Who's, who's going to win the fight? Strongest person is going to win the fight. That seems logical. Who's going to get rich? The shrewdest person is going to get rich, that, that wise person that knows how to do things. These are the ones we expect to be successful, and that's where we get phrases like the survival of the fittest and things like that. And it's very easy to buy into this kind of thinking ourselves. We want to be successful in life. We're going to have to run faster. We're going to have to fight harder. We're going to have to be more devoted so that we can outplay, outwit, and outlast everybody around us. And as logical as this way of thinking sounds, Solomon points out that, that that's not the way it works. We can't count on these things, right? So the race doesn't always go to the swift, and the battle doesn't always go to the strong. That's not how it works. Our abilities do not guarantee success. And the truth is that Christians think this way too. We, we have wrong thinking about these things as well. So if you were to ask most Christians, or a lot of Christians, hopefully not the Christians in this room, but a lot of people, what do you need to do to be saved or, or to stay saved? Many of them would begin to list out the things that we do. So, you know, I need to stop doing these things and I need to start doing these things. And, and the idea is that if we run fast enough, try hard enough, and do good enough, that God will like us more and he will bless us more. That's the way we tend to think. And then when that doesn't happen, what do we conclude? Well, we start to think, well, God doesn't favor us and maybe God doesn't like us. Well, I got news for you. God doesn't like you because of you. <laughs> that might not, that might, today might not be a big self-esteem building time for us, but God doesn't like you because of you. He likes you because of Jesus. That's, that's the truth. Uh, David quoted it, this, this guy this week at Table Talk, and I thought this quote was so funny, I had to say it again. It's a guy named Les Lampier, and he says this, Jesus saw the best in me, then he died to forgive me for it. <laughs> it's like, yes, <laughs> that's good, right? I mean, ouch, that's smarts. But, but for the Christian, our abilities can't give us success, but Christ's abilities can that's the good news of the gospel. No matter how much I apply myself, I will fall short. I can't please God. I can't earn his favor by what I do. But then Jesus steps in and says, I can. I can do that for you. Isn't that amazing? I can win the trophy every time. I can win the race every time. I can win the battle every time. You know, he, he wins every time. And he says, I'll step in and I'll do this for you. So he says, I can, I can live a sinless life for you. I can live in a way that perfectly satisfies all of God's commands, and then I, I can give you credit for it. But he doesn't stop there, right? I'll credit you with, with the win. I'll give you my righteousness, but I'll do more than that. I'll also go to the 
cross in your place. I'll suffer for you. I'll, I'll, I'll take on what you deserved myself. That's crazy. He will willingly become our substitute on the cross, receive the sentence that we deserve, and then give us credit for that as though we had paid the debt ourselves. That's what the gospel says. And then the way we know that it's, that it's real, and that it's effective, and that it, that it will cause us to, to live in victory and have success is because after three days of dying, you know, he died, he was buried, and then three days later, a pretty big deal happened, right? He got up and he walked out of the grave. And that means that this victory is real. It's not something we have to imagine. This, this is, he won. And so those who believe in that and trust in him will have success. And, and if we're now successful, by the way, we need to make sure we give credit where credit's due. It's not us. It's him. It's all him. The only thing we brought to this party is our sin. He did the rest of it. And so praise him for it. Everything good in my life is because of him. He's the best thing about me. He's the best thing about all of us. And I always appreciate people who kind of deflect adoration and praise when somebody comes up and tries to say, you know, something great about you. You can, you can easily just say, you know what? This is God. He deserves the credit for anything. You know, the Bible says that apart from him, we can do how much? A little? <laughs> Nothing. You know, again, it's like that's kind of depressing to hear. But apart from him, you can't do anything, even the next breath. That, that I take is his mercy. It's from him. So we, we may never be successful according to the world's definition of success, but if Jesus has justified us, redeemed us, and reconciled us, we're more successful than just about any person in this world. I mean, think about that. I, I just imagine that conversation. It's like, where'd you go to college? You know, Harvard or wherever, you know, something that's oppressive. It's like, where'd you go? Calvary University, you know? <laughs> that's where I went. It's like can't beat that. The success that comes from knowing Christ is an everlasting success. And the success that, that people find in the world is not. It's fleeting. It comes and it goes. We often talk about people getting their five minutes of fame. That's what that means. It's just nothing. It might be a blip. But our success through Jesus Christ will last through eternity. It doesn't end. So Solomon's first point is that our abilities cannot guarantee success, even though it seems logical. But he's going to explain why it doesn't work that way next. In verse 11, he gives the reasons that the fast and the strong and the shrewd don't always triumph. There are two adversaries that they haven't accounted for, time and chance. Now, this is different from suffering just consequences for your actions. You know, some people do dumb things and they win, you know, dumb prizes, that kind of thing. That's not what it's talking about here. This is kind of what we would refer to as, as bad luck, the, the stuff we didn't see coming. So um, one commentator said this, his name's Kidner. He says, time and chance are paired, no doubt, because they both have a way of taking matters suddenly out of our hands. That's the idea. No matter how fast or how smart or strong you are, you can't avoid the pitfalls of time and chance. They, they come at a time when you don't expect and you can't anticipate them. So verse 12 gives us two examples of how that works. It says, for man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. And we see this kind of thing happen all the time in the world, right? Icebergs happen, don't they? Uh, the Titanic was, was a marvel in modern shipbuilding. They said that it was unsinkable, and it was until it hit an iceberg <laughs> that, that it had no idea was, you know, was, was going to be there. That's the kind of stuff we happen. That, you know, you think about um, athletes, career-ending injuries that they didn't see coming. I don't know how, I hate even to bring it up because I can almost still hear the noise from this event, but does anybody remember Joe Theismann getting hit by Lawrence Taylor in 1985? Uh, his leg 
wasn't the same after that. And he couldn't play football ever again. I mean, it just was like in an instant over. I don't know if you guys saw the Tour de France this year. I don't normally watch it, but because of what happened, I couldn't. You know, all the bikes are there. They're all getting ready to start this long race. The best athletes in the world, some might say, because of what they do. And they're all excited, getting ready to start. And there's some, you know, right when the race starts, they all start going. This is going to be it. And some lady goes out there with this sign. She's got her back to the riders, and she's holding it out in front of the TV. And all the bikes kind of, she didn't, they ran right into this lady, and she starts this domino effect of all of these bicycles. Bicycles were actually snapped in two from the, from the carnage that took place from one lady coming out. I mean, none of them got up this morning and saw that coming. Time and chance took them down. You know, it, it can just... It can sneak up on us. And really the truth of the matter is that time and chance are the enemies of those who live under the sun with no thought of God. They can come at any time and knock you from the very top all the way down to the bottom, just like that. So if you choose to ignore God and leave him out of your life, time and chance are kind of what you have to deal with. That's what's left for you to deal with. But what about for the Christian? Do we need to be worried about time and chance? I love the thought of this. Not if we believe that God is in control of what happens in our lives. You know, God's word tells me that he works all things together for my good and that he will complete the work that he started in me. That means that nothing comes into my life that God isn't using for my good. Even the, the things that frustrate me or that I don't understand. You know, sometimes something as simple as missing a traffic light could be God doing something for us. The other day I was leaving the church, it was dark out. I missed the light coming out of the Sun River Business Park. And it's like, you want to get that one because sometimes it takes a long time. And I'm over there going, oh, you know, I'm mad because I missed the light. And it wasn't even that long before it turned and I, I headed on the road. And as I'm driving down South Century Drive, which is a long stretch, it's really dark. Um, I look about 50, 100 feet ahead of me and there's all these deer crossing the road. Well, I had my brights on at that point and because I missed the traffic light, I, I was where I could still see them instead of actually running into one of them. And I thought, that's a silly example, but you just never know all the different ways that God is. You know, I think about those movies where you've got, you know, the guy that goes into the building, the espionage kind of movies, you know, Mission Impossible. And he's got a, and then there's some guy out in the van that's hacked the, all their camera systems. And he's saying, all right, okay, wait right there. Wait, wait, wait. Okay, run. Go. Okay, now go left. You know, he's telling, that's how I feel like God's hacked into the world's computer system. I mean, it's not really that. And, he, and he's watching all this stuff, right? That, you know what that means to me is time and chance. Pfft, you got nothing on me. God's watching over us. And I love that he doesn't take breaks from the wheel of the ship. You know, there's no icebergs coming that he doesn't see or know about. He's, he's in control. There's never a time when he's not on his throne, and that gives me great comfort. So in verse 13, Solomon's going to start to talk about something else here, this profound example of wisdom that really impacted him. He's just talked about how we expect the strong to win the battle. And this story, like at the Vegas odds makers, we're, we're going to, you know, let you place bets on this. Um, odds would be stacked greatly against the city he's about to describe. And you'll see what I mean here as we read in verse 13. He says, I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man. And he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. So there's a story of this 
king kingdom that comes against this little city. Not a lot of people in there. They don't know what to do. And, and then there's this wise man that somehow saves the day. Unfortunately, Solomon doesn't give us any details about how it went down. So it's not a very satisfying story, really, is it? It's like, I want to know. There's no explosions. There's no car chases. There's nothing here. It's like I wouldn't ask Solomon to read my kids a bedtime story based on this. It's like, you know, it's not very good. What happened? How did it go down? I wish that it, he filled it in. So I'm going to do you a favor this morning. I'm going to tell you another account in the Bible where we get some details of a similar story. And this is found in 2 Samuel. Um, and it tells the story of a wanted man named Sheba. Uh, Sheba was this guy who came against King David, tried to take him down. It didn't work. So he ends up running for his life, and he flees back to his hometown, a place called Abel. And he's hiding out there to take refuge. And it says that an army of men led by Joab and his mighty men uh, came to the city of Abel to lay siege to it. Now, I don't know. It's a bad day when, when Joab and his mighty men of valor show up at your doorstep. If you've read any of the accounts, you know this, is just, this isn't good. And so in verse 15 of Samuel, 2 Samuel 20, it says, All the men who were with Joab came and besieged him at Abel. Um, they came up, a, they basically built this mound or these siege works, which were kind of like towers. They could do them out of wood or they could do them out of dirt. And they would put you over the walls of the city so that you could see down into the city. You could attack that way and you could kind of see what was going on. So they, they, they are all set up. And then verse 16 says there's this wise woman who called from the city. And she says, listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to him. And he came near to her. And the woman said, are you Joab? And he answered, I am. And she said to him, listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I am listening. And then she said, they used to say in former times, let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled a matter. So she's saying this used to be a place where people would come to get godly wisdom advice. You know, go to this town and they'll, they'll tell you what to do. And then she says this, I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Now, this is, this is smart. This is wise. This woman's not only smart, she's bold because she's going up in front of Joab and doing this, but she's basically saying, this is a good town of Israel with a godly heritage. Why would you, why would you tear down one of Israel's great cities? And Joab answered, far be it from me. Far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. That's not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted his hand against King David. Give him up alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Uh, that escalated quickly, but, but that's what she goes back to the city in her wisdom and says, Guys, this is what we need to do. If we do this, if we, if we deliver him over, they'll, they'll go away. And sure enough, when Joab and his mighty men, uh, I don't know how it looked exactly. I just picture this, this thing coming over the wall. What's that? Oh, and then they blow the trumpet and go home. So you see how wisdom prevails this day. And that's a similar thing of what Solomon is describing in Ecclesiastes 9, even though we don't get the details. This is hopeless situation with what seems to be only one possible outcome. And yet, by the wisdom of this one poor man, the city is not overtaken by force. And this profound outcome causes Solomon to conclude that wisdom is better than might. Even though it may not make sense to us, this is his conclusion. And here's the weird part, though, is that we, don't, we still don't think that way. Even we'll hear a story like this, and yet we will still think, nah, that's not right. Uh, we have a hard time believing that that's the case. It seems to us that, that might is better than wisdom or more profound. Uh, and in fact, in verse 15, it says that after that man saved the day, they immediately forgot him. They immediately forgot he even existed. 
Like, oh, you know, how did that work? I don't remember. You know, it's like, the, the, why, you know, the, the wise man. No, they forgot about him. Why is that? And the truth is that we're just more impressed with power. If that poor man would have gone like Chuck Norris on, on, the, on the situation that day and defeated them with power instead of wisdom, he would have been a hero. They would have put him up on their shoulders, paraded him around. Statues would be made. Paintings would be painted. History would record the event. We would remember that. And I believe that the reason for this is it has something to do with strength being attributed to what man can do and wisdom being attributed to what God can do. See, wisdom is connected to God. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So wisdom represents something that comes from outside of us, and strength represents something we do. Now, the truth is that strength comes from God, too. We know that. I mean, when we just really think it through, clearly strength comes from God. But it's a lot easier to connect the dots of strength back to ourselves. You know, wisdom, it's harder to do. Wisdom, we know it's, it's something else, usually. So strength is something that we use to take matters into our own hands. It's, uh, it's something we exert to, to kind of make sure that our will happens the way we want it to. But God says wisdom is better than strength because it ultimately means that we're relying on him more than we're relying on ourselves. So the question is, do we really trust strength over wisdom? Are we guilty of that? I had to think about that a lot this week. It's like, what am I trusting in ultimately? And I started thinking of this list of things. Um, don't look at me and think I was thinking of myself, but muscle. Muscle is something that we, I used to trust in it more than I do now. It's like now if I had to fight somebody, I'm just like my back would go out in an instant and I'd be, I'd be over. But we trust in muscle. We trust in money. We trust in weapons, like guns. I'm not trying to get, you know, personal, but we, those are the things we trust in. Political power. Those are the kinds of things that we, they make sense to us, but they're all worldly ideas of how to protect ourselves and how to save ourselves. They give us the illusion that we're in charge instead of God being in charge, but they're all subject to the pitfalls of time and chance, right? Muscles atrophy, they go away. Guns jam, you know, they miss their target. I didn't say you miss, the guns miss the target, right? Of course you guys are great aim, but the idea is that these things can't be counted on. Time and chance can mess these things up. So if strength is fleeting, we, we, we need to pay attention to that. We can't rely on that. We need to rely on something other than ourselves and something that's not subject to time and chance. Psalm 147 verses 10 and 11 say this, The Lord's delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor is his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. So how would we trust in wisdom over strength? Well, the first thing that popped in my mind was prayer. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. How many of us lack wisdom? I mean, all of us do. We, there's so many times we just don't know what we're supposed to do. And, and prayer is a way for us to rely on God and seek him and his wisdom instead of relying on ourselves. Studying God's word and then following what it says is a way for us to, to seek wisdom and to apply it. We look for answers so many other places. I mean, how, how many of us you know, go to Google first before we go to God's word, sometimes I go to Google to find the passage I'm looking for. That's not the same. But the idea is that we, we want to try to find these solutions outside of God's word. This is where we look for solutions. This is where wisdom exists. And, and then I thought about just the, the, the gift of the church that we have each other. 
that we can seek godly counsel from one another. Th th these are the people that, that know us the best, that we're sitting with, and, and we can talk to them about the things that are going on in our life and say, hey, guys, I need wisdom right now. Pray for me. Give me counsel. Give me advice. Those are all things that, that we can do where we're looking to God to fight our battles and to meet our needs instead of relying on ourselves or relying on wisdom from the world. The wisdom of the world is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it shouldn't look like foolishness to those who aren't. So these things that I just mentioned, if you said, yeah, this is what I do when I need wisdom, people would go, that's ridiculous. But it's not. It's what works. Just because they say it's ridiculous doesn't mean that it is. Our God is a strong tower. I love that. You know, if you, if you need to run someplace for refuge, where are you going to go? Our God is a strong tower. The righteous run to him and are saved. That's where we need to go. Well, another thing we see in the story that Solomon tells us is that God uses the most unlikely person in the city to accomplish the win. And I really love this. It's just, it's just cool. There's no way that the rulers of this city, when the attack started to happen, said, hey, does anybody know where that poor wise man is? That poor dude that, that's hanging around. Does anybody know where we want to talk to him about what we should do? They, they didn't think of this guy. He was nobody to them. And he's the one that saved the day. I love that God turns logic on its head. He delights in using the not-so-obvious choice, doesn't he? This is what 1 Corinthians 1, 26 says. And again, I told you I wasn't going to build up your self-esteem today. Get, get ready for more. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of the Lord. <laughs> Praise God. You know, I can never boast. Anything good that goes on in my life, anything that um, you know, works out the way it should be is, is, is to his glory and his credit. We will never boast in his presence. Nobody will ever be confused about where the victory comes from. And the good news is that God can use the least of us to do amazing things. You know, we, we just hit our 10th year as a church. We started the door in, in Sun River 10 years ago. And, and I, the fact that it's gone, you know, more than a month, <laughs> it kind of amazes me sometimes. If you look at who started it, and I'm not, you know, being self-effacing, I'm just being serious. Me and David and Doug Rayleigh were the three guys that set out to start that thing. And the fact that I remember David's dad coming to the first picnic, you know, we had our first picnic and he, he saw the people that were gathered and he said, there is no way that, that this should be happening right now based on the three of you. And he was right. You know, he's kind of a jerk, but, but he was right. I'm just kidding. <laughs> if you know David's dad, he's a, he, would, he would appreciate that comment. He's a funny dude. But it's like we know why this has worked. And, and if it was up to us, we know what would have happened. It would have totally tanked. And yet God has just been faithful. It's been his power. It's been his work. And, and we're amazed by it. You know, I couldn't help but think of the account in... Um, 1 Samuel 17 of David and Goliath. I know it's a story that you guys know and are familiar with, but it's, it's, it's so cool to think on it because here you have, you have the army of Israel and you have the army of the Philistines. And, and I don't know what the battlefield looks like, but, but they're kind of all set up on, on either side of this field. And you've got Goliath, this giant. According to what we read in the Bible, this, this guy's nearly 10 feet tall. And, and his sword is, you know, the stuff he's even got on is weighs more than some people in this room. And he's, and he's just this massive, you know, giant of a warrior. And he's, and he's calling out to Israel and saying, you guys send over your best man and I'll take him on. And if we win, you surrender to us. 
And if you guys win, we'll surrender to you. And that was kind of the deal. And all the men of Israel, I don't know if they're hiding behind their tent or their trees and their just knees are knocking and they're scared to death because all they're looking at is worldly strength. And then you've got David who shows up basically to deliver lunch to his brothers. He's, he's a youth. We don't know how old he was there. People speculate. We're not told, but clearly he's, he's young. And he shows up and he sees this happen. And he's like, what's going on, guys? And they, they tell him the story and all that. And, and I love that, you know, he basically doesn't think about his own strength or, or his own ability. He says, this is, this is God. This is our God that he's mocking. He knows that God cannot be defeated. And so without any hesitation, he's like, I'll go out there. I'll take it. And again, I don't think it was like he was relying on his own strength. In fact, he says, this, this didn't happen by strength. This is God who does this. And so you have David walking out there, a young guy, and the, and the giant's even irritated by it. You're going to send like a kid? You're going to send this guy out to take me on? And, and he mocks him. And David just pulls out his rock and takes a sling, hurls it. And this thing, you know, I, I kind of think of it as a, you know, God-directed missile that just lands in this guy's forehead and, and sinks into it. And the guy drops like a rock. That's the power of God. David knew that his God couldn't be defeated. And so he it didn't, didn't even hesitate. God can use the least of us to accomplish whatever he wants us to accomplish. And I take heart in that. I, I think so many people, so many Christians don't think that they have any purpose or any use in the church. And that just couldn't be further from the truth. I think of all the ways that you guys can be used in the lives of each other on a daily basis. Do you pray for one another? Do you encourage one another? Do you remind people of the truth of God's word? If we just focused on those things, just pray, you know, prayer, encouragement, and, and, and speaking truth into each other's lives, the truth of God's word. That's more than, you know, God gives us two main things, love me and, and love people. Just do that. And you're doing a lot in the church. The world is lacking this in so many areas. I love to think that we may have the opportunity to be that, that poor wise man in the lives of other people. You know, nobody expects that we're going to do anything. And then it's funny how people even view Christians sometimes. They kind of view us as they don't like us. They, they look at us as stupid, pitiable, you know. But, but when they get in trouble and they have nowhere to turn, you know where a lot of times they'll go? To that Christian in their lives to say, hey, I don't know what to do, man. Would you pray for me? I need wisdom right now. And so maybe we'll get the chance to be that poor wise man in their lives, the one that comes out with the, hey, here's the answer. And, and you know what the answer really is, which I love, is we can tell them about the poor wise man who saved us. Isn't that who Jesus is? Think about who Jesus was. He was poor while he was here. He had nothing. He was despised and rejected by men. Nobody was looking to Jesus as the answer to anything. And yet Jesus was the answer for everything. And so we get to point them to, to him. Verse 17 goes on to say, The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. You know, we don't have to look very far to see that wisdom is scarce in this world. You, you have to kind of lean in to try to hear it today. Um, it's, it's, not, it's not loud, but you can't avoid hearing fools. They're just, they've got the megaphone. They're the ones that, are, that have the microphone right now. Uh, they're speaking loudly. They're speaking persuasively. They kind of just bully their way through the world. I wish they would heed the old proverb, you know, better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt. That would be fantastic, but they don't do that at all. So we have to listen for wisdom over the shouts of fools. It's going to be hard for us to tune into wisdom. You'll have to make an effort. We have to listen for that still, small voice 
that's out there. And this is why coming to church and hearing God's word proclaimed is so important because you're not going to hear it out in the world. All through the week, we're hearing misinformation. We're hearing things that aren't true. God's word is true, and we need to be able to tune into that and hear it. We need to saturate ourselves with it. These pundits and experts, they'll tell us all kinds of things. And the, and the sad thing is that we want to hear that more often than we want to hear this. I don't know why that is, but sometimes what the fools are telling us and what they're saying is what our flesh wants to hear. And that's kind of where we lean into. Bold foolishness can be very convincing. You know, I, I've often thought, even in the church, and this is a sad thing to say, but, but I think you could almost come into a church one day and preach, just, just to see what happens, preach for 10 minutes, complete heresy, complete false stuff, and see what happens. See if anybody even notices it. Because if you speak convincingly enough, people will believe it. And that's what we're seeing in churches all around us today. We're not going to do that. That's just, I've thought about it. Don't worry. <laughs> Haven't done it today, I hope. Uh, but I see churches being filled with, with people that are speaking things that aren't true about God. They're not true about his word. They're not true about salvation. And, and it fills stadiums of people who want to hear it. That's terrifying to me. And that's why we as Christians, we can't compromise what God's word teaches. No matter how, how weird we begin to look, no matter how off people think we are, we must stick to this and not give in to it because it's happening all around us. And when we do that, we, we, we lose everything. We can't reject that. Woe to us if we begin to reject God's word. This is something we have to hold fast to. It's, it's life. It's how we get through this life. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This matters. I don't think we love God's word as much as we should. I know, I know that I, I say I love it, but functionally in my life throughout the week, I don't, I don't act that way very often. I love how King David viewed God's word. He wrote about it in Psalm 19. And I, it just puts me to shame when I read these, these words, but this is what he says. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. David loved God's word. It was life to his bones. He wanted it more than gold, you know, and honey, which I don't understand the honey part. Because, you know, honey's good. But gold, that part I get, right? You know, the world is full of time and chance. It's full of of Chance opportunities and unseen calamities. Um, if you didn't experience any last week, you know, just hang tight. You'll probably, you'll probably have one coming to you this week. It's just the way the world works. Where will you turn when it happens? Your own strength, the world, the information and the wisdom there. You know, all I can do at times like this is cling to Christ. Cling to him. Cling to the one that can save. I'm so grateful that we have him. I can't imagine not having him in the world the way it is today. And yet God has sent his son for us. And, and we're going we're gonna to have communion. I looked for the table in the room. There's usually tables on both sides. There's only one over here today, I think. But we get to have communion today. And communion is a time when we get to remember what God has done for sinners. So this is Christ 
for you. This is what it represents, his body broken for you and his blood shed for you so that you can have life. So this is a time for Christians. This table is set for Christians. If you're not a Christian, there's nothing here for you. But if you are a Christian, this is life. This is the gospel. This is what Christ has done for us. Yes. Have you been baptized? So that's fantastic. She's right, actually. You guys should be baptized if you haven't been. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to enjoy communion. Father, thank you so much that we get to enjoy um, celebrating the work of your son, Lord. We have, we, have, uh, we have nothing to bring to you, Lord. We just, we just come with, you know, brokenness. And we thank you that Christ is everything. We thank you that you've given us a Savior. We thank you that he was willing to go and have his body be broken and his blood shed on behalf of us. We love you. We thank you. And we pray that this time would mean everything to us as we contemplate Jesus and what he's done for us. In his name we ask this. Amen.